Welcome to the O'Reilly Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Foster. Today I'm talking with Marcus Asila, who is a developer advocate at Lightpen. Marcus has been working with Java EE servers from different vendors for more than 14 years and gives presentations on his favorite topics at leading international tech conferences. He is also the author of the new O'Reilly Report, Developing Reactive Microservices, which walks Java developers through the creation of a complete reactive microservices system. So, Marcus, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Brian. Thank you. It's my pleasure, actually. Yeah, no, it's great to have you. So, so you know, kind of getting going, um, you know, so you've been developing enterprise systems, you know, in Java for over for 14 years, for, for, for some time. How has how the enterprise landscape changed today compared with when you first started? Yeah, I, I have to admit it's almost 16 years by now, wow. um, which is scary enough on its <laughs> own. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> When when I started working with enterprise-grade software, um, it's pretty much all been about application platforms. Um, my favorite always has been like Java EE, um, standardized, various vendors. Um, there's been a lot of thoughts put into how to architect those applications. We had our layers, we had business UI layers, we had our integration layers. Um, we had our perfectly centralized application servers running on insanely large hardware, mm. HP super domes and whatnot. Um, the teams tend to be very large. Um, we specified a hell lot of um, what the software finally should be able to do front up. We had a couple of very outdated um, project methodologies like um, waterfall or... Um, yeah, the idea was to specify as much as possible front up because development was so expensive with us, large teams and testers, and we had to actually run it on very expensive hardware. And uh, this was kind of okay. I think we built some very, very pretty monolithic systems, but it turns out to be those large code bases resulted in in a very very complex whole system so every single change you had to introduce and i mean not to not to forget those systems usually tend to run for at least five to ten years in production so it's not just fire and forget and spend a couple of million dollars right Mm -hmm. um so those systems actually had to be maintained and kept alive and uh I mean, no matter how final a software system is, there, there'll always be changes to a certain extent. And taking the complete complexity into account on the developer side um, f- to pushing everything into production and actually scaling it out on, on those centralized cluster infrastructures, um, that lead to, to very, very long change times. So actually pushing a change down to production from development easily took months like my my favorite example of one of my bigger projects we've been putting it live twice a year and uh one of the best times to do this is obviously christmas right when everybody's almost on vacation so right and uh, what else did we do uh we basically used what java e had to offer right so we've been working with threat pools http requests i've been doing a shitload of um performance benchmarking and uh it was kind of a black art to have a very, very heavy load centralized system running. And we've been all doing that based on synchronized APIs, um, for example, JDBC. So there's exactly been a request to the database, has been processed, and the result comes up. And when the result is there, we're actually finally servicing the client. 
and that could take a couple of seconds, but that was okay. Um, as I said, we built some very beautiful monolith in, in the past, as far as I can tell. The issue that we are running into is that our world is changing drastically at the very moment. We get a hell lot of mobile devices around us, or more generally like internet-connected devices, the whole IoT scene. They all produce insanely amount of data. Even cars actually send their usage data or their problems back to their vendors today. So we, whenever we walk, wherever we go, we produce just insanely amount of footprint and data. And, and users actually want to want to profit from those new use cases that kind of evolve out of those amounts of data. Um, for example, if my car recognizes it has an error, it found like failure somewhere, and it like calls back to to the maintenance shop or even the vendor. So we expect somebody to actually make an appointment, right, for us to come in and just have the car serviced. And everything should be like automatically in the background. And doing this is just super, super hard with such a large amount of data. And um, actually, we all know that like users are very impatient. If we have a function in our mobile app, um, we basically navigate away or restart the app after three seconds of no response, right? And if you just think about the, the car maintenance example, and uh, if you think about running that on a centralized infrastructure, maybe Java E-based, classical relational database underneath, this is probably a hell lot of a project to implement, and it's not really, not really easy to do. And in addition to that, it's not only changing business requirements and, and people having new business ideas. Let's mention Uber, right? So they came out of nowhere with an idea to actually connect drivers and yeah, passengers. And this is something that has never been done before. So new ideas and new business models come out of nowhere and have to be life in, I'd say, weeks rather than months and years. So add a lot more of, for example, uh, legal requirements that change. Insurance scenarios. A good example is the EU. Like we have a centralized legislative and um, if they put a new law up every insurance in the EU has to actually implement that and uh, it's mostly a matter of weeks and not of months to actually have the system change and we can't do that with those old centralized platforms anymore uh, classical application platforms like we've been using them for so many years are definitely not the best fit to fulfill those response and processing time requirements while still serving the exponentially increasing amount of data that all the connected devices generate. Um, so bottom line, enterprises are on the run for new alternatives, for better alternatives, for less hardware, more bang for the money maybe. I think that's the biggest change that I've seen over the last couple of years. No, I mean, that's a really good point. I think, you know, we're seeing that, you know, again, monoliths are this big thing, but we, there are solutions that I think are coming out there, you know, and I think as we go into it, I mean, I, I mean I'm curious, I mean, you know, are predominantly, you know, Java, Java-centric enterprises, you know, are they ready for the challenges that are coming with, say, microservices and distributed systems, you know, I mean, I mean, and I guess, you know, specifically too, which large-scale industries could benefit the most from adopting or migrating to these new technologies? <laughs> 
Two very good questions. I think, um, first of all, the classical enterprise today is is just a platform shop. And uh, with, the, with the real success of Java over the last couple of years, it's the double-digit number of years, it's like a real large time frame that Java has been the de facto standard in many enterprises. So those are exactly the the places where we could actually use some kind of new architecture, right? And if you compare the the traits of microservices, if you think that through a little bit more, it's not just putting up a new framework and making it work. It's not just using another programming approach. Having a microservice-based architecture actually requires a hell lot of things. Um, you need to think about your organizational and methodology um, capabilities. You need to think about a 100% automation of everything, including tests and production setting, um, CI, CD. You need to be aware of distributed systems and how they react. You need to have a really good idea how to do s simple things like service discovery. Just imagine 30 services talking to each other and it's super hard, even with that small amount of services, to actually discover them at the right time with the right version. Um, and you also need like a data center that's capable of running all those teensy little services, right? So there are a couple of implications that I think are not exactly ready made for those large-scale classical enterprises. But given the fact that they all run Java and platforms based on the JVM, this is exactly where they could have the biggest profit out of it. And um, this kind of, yeah, it's, it's, it's a vicious circle if you like to. So and most vendors imply that just using another framework you name them, there are plenty out there, probably solves all your issues, which is not true, but um, gives the impression everybody could just do it. On the other hand, I think it's the only way forward, given given the circumstances of today's business, right? Um, so yeah, it's, but bottom line comment is, I think every single industry with which has to deal with that kind of changing business requirements, the additional amount of data, reduced response time requirements, millions of apps that they want to ship to their users, I think they will definitely benefit from those kind of resilient, reactive microservice architectures. The, the biggest advantage, I think, is that you can have super reliable applications which can be very flexible and uh, can be changed very easily or even extended. So I wouldn't even pick a single industry. We all know the classical examples like Netflix. Obviously, a lot of the microservice architecture thoughts came out of that kind of area, like video streaming, online services more broadly. Also, Amazon is known for as, as a classical retailer for having microservice-based architectures. Looking at, yeah, Black Friday sales is a good example to me personally because I get it, like, a big online retailer just has millions of hits once a year for this particular day and the whole infrastructure if it would have built been built on java ee it would have been scaled and built exactly for that worst case day um, resilient microservice architectures can scale exactly to the load that they need to serve and uh, yeah name a single industry that wouldn't be happy about having that kind of architecture in place 
Mm-hmm. No, that, that's a that's a really interesting insight, and I think yeah, I think another piece of this too, and this is something I think you've been becoming more and more familiar with now in your new role with Flightbend is this whole idea of reactive, you know, and how, and, and and kind of how does how that impacts and how do the 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 the, the various you know practices that revolve around reactive kind of impact things, you know, and I, I think another interesting thing to look about, and I think developers are coming across, you know, and ultimately, you know. You know, what do you think? You know, you know, why should should every you know, Java developer care about Reactive? You know, it, it's a paradigm that that seems like various parts of it have been around, but it seems like it's similar in other ways. But I wonder, you know, it, you know, is the paradigm you know any different? You know, from concepts concepts introduced with say functional programming. Um, it is for sure. I I think it's it's even hard to explain in one sentence. And if you right. just Google around a little bit and try to try to in, understand the basics of Reactive programming, mm-hmm. it's still something that we're not really used to right at, at the very core reactive programming is a paradigm based on asynchronous message passing so the idea is to not follow a request throughout the whole system and wait until all the chains um basically finish to process it's more establishing boundaries between individual components and uh Throughout loose coupling and isolation and, and most importantly location transparency, you can even propagate arrows between those components in messages. It's Think of it as an asynchronous stream of data. So we can literally start processing those streams at the very first message that arrives without having to wait for the final um, element in that stream. It, it could be literally an endless stream of events. And uh, reacting to messages actually is the best when, when they arrive, like immediately. There is kind of a proximity to um, functional programming in general. I mean, a stream can be an input to another. You can, you can have multiple streams. You can merge them. You can filter them. Java programmers actually... They got the first impression of what it is with the um, Java 8 introduced streams API. I mean, it's only a functional view over collections, basically. But uh, the whole ecosystem is switching over into the reactive programming paradigm. And Java 9, 9 is slated to um, actually include the full reactive stream specification. And uh, even Spring Pivotal uh, announced that they are going to switch uh, over their core framework to to a reactive base, right? So this is definitely something that the classical Java developer, even I, had to get used to, to switch the mindset a little bit instead of thinking in in methods and object-oriented, first of all, is it's more like thinking in messages and processing those asynchronous streams. And, and that's definitely a challenge, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, and it, it seems like work, as you mentioned, you know, from various other key places within, within the industry continue to kind of take shape and, and people are really, I think, excited, you know, about, you know, uh, you know, about what reactive brings, you know, and the principles that, you know, brought to the table. I think another interesting thing to look at too, if we go back to microservices, again, microservices has kind of become this new thing. Again, some of the, some of the ideas have been around, but we're now coming back to microservices. You know, I, I guess in your opinion, you know, how would you say reactive principles, you know, make this architecture even power, even more powerful? I, I think what, what kind of blew me away and, and hooked me up personally with the whole reactive microservices idea is that 
reactive technologies basically always thought in terms of microservices. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at uh, something like actors, for example, one actor could easily be a microservice. And it's been fulfilling like all the requirements that came out of the first experiments by companies like Netflix since very much day one. And there are a couple of others, others like Haskell. There are ideas in the reactive programming world slash community that definitely fulfill all the requirements that we want to see fulfilled for microservice-based architectures. Um, so instead of tweaking something that is not even distantly built for a microservice distributed architecture into into something like this like speaking of java ee just putting a couple of rest services or putting a web application into a container and calling that one service is it's just not the right thing right we we basically used the wrong technologies to build the wrong things and uh, reactive principles and applications built according to those traits out of, for example, the reactive manifesto, they've always been exactly that. And I think that's the biggest, biggest advantage at that point, to have a reliable technology, to have something that is rock solid and proven, and uh, take that instead of tweaking existing synchronous api based platforms and kind of trying to make that work with a within the world that's just not fitting right mm -hmm. no that that's really interesting and i think yeah i mean you know kind of you know getting back to this idea of reactive and microservices and, and coming together i know at lightbend um you know you guys just recently released lagom you know, which is an open source reactive microservices framework, you know, targeted at Java developers to start. I know it will broaden from there. You know, I, I think tools like these are really great. And I, I, I'm curious too, you know, to hear, you know, really what, what do you think makes this framework unique and, you know, why should developers really care about it? That actually kind of links into, into your earlier question. I think what I, what I try to describe without even saying it like bluntly is that distributed systems are super hard. Hmm. And if you have to use uh, something that's, out there since millions of years, for example, Akka and Play, it might be a real challenge to actually implement a complete, fully microservice-based system. And the idea of Lagom actually was to abstract a reasonable amount of the inherited, inherited complexity away by just being highly opinionated. It's not meant to be just another microservices framework. It's actually meant to be a highly opinionated guidance, providing developers a lot more than just an API, providing them a lot more strict. Yeah, guidance is probably the, the exact right word to, to implement those microservice-based applications. And there's not a lot left and right. We're not supporting millions of things that you could do. We have a very, very strict view how co uh, components actually communicate mm -hmm. and which technologies get used underneath. And uh, as a developer, you only have to implement your services. And the second thing that we have is actually a persistence API. And uh, wrapping everything up into a developer experience that really supports you. Um, I mean, you've heard about Fed jars, for example, right? Mm -hmm. So packaging your application in a single executable jar. Let's just assume for a second you have like 10 of those 
fed jars as microservices. And you as a developer, you have to work on one of them. And you need all 10 to actually test or debug or do whatever. So what are you going to do? Like firing up 10 console windows and executing all those individual services? Are you, are you going to stage that to something like a centralized platform as a service and configure everything or do some magic, like have a really complex round trip to get into an integration develop, uh, environment? This is exactly what Lagom assumes that you as a developer, you want to work on your local machine. And if you have to have 10 services running, plus your database, a service gateway, um, uh, that's definitely something that should be yeah, a command line away and not millions of console windows or staging processes, right? So it takes you, as a developer, it really takes your hand and lets you run all your services just with a breeze uh, in a single JVM, for sure, because it's development environment and it's not distributed. But we want to be performant, right? We want to see changes like locally instantly. And there's no need to stage that into a real complex production near system. Hmm. But it's it's also exactly like closing that last missing piece because beside having a service API, persistence API, all the development support that you could uh, ever wish for, it also takes you all the way into production. So you're not left alone instead of having to configure a lot to make your local development environment work into production. It's it's basically another command to stage that. And I I really like the the approach. It's not millions of APIs that you have to learn. It's again the the very opinionated approach takes away a lot of the complexity, a lot of the pressure on the individual developers to learn like the whole universe of new goodies in reactive programming. Yeah, it's exactly what Lagom means probably because Lagom, you know, it's a Swedish word, right? So it, it says just the right amount or the right size. And I think that's just a perfect description of what, what Lagom uh, tries to solve. And And seriously, I mean, Please never forget, distributed systems are hard, but they are possible. And uh, having something that takes all the heavy lifting off you to kind of pre-glue all those individual components together lets you implement a really great microservice-based architecture while still flattening your personal learning curve as a developer. Hey, I've, I haven't sold that perfectly. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely seems like that, you know, Lagom is really focused on kind of easing that barrier. And I think as developers really start to, you know, you know, learn more about it and start to play around with examples and kind of get going, you know, I, I do think they'll be really intrigued to kind of get going, um, which I think is exciting. Um, and I think getting back to Lagom too, I know event sourcing and CQRS, um, you know, command query responsibility segregation are fundamental concepts, you know, behind the frameworks support for services that store information. Um, what do you, what do these concepts mean? Um, and why is persistent data like this important for microservices based systems? Well, that's only a question for you, but probably 20 minutes of answer for me. Um, okay. Actually, uh, I've been speaking about the persistence API, and this is pretty much at the core of the persistence API in Logum. You can optimize databases for either reads or writes in general, like relational databases. And, uh, looking back at the classical architectures, that's always been kind of the biggest trade-off to make. And I have to admit, if you look at microservices that potentially have to work on a very large set of data very quickly, 
this doesn't sound like something that you could easily implement with a single database in a classical architecture. So somebody started to look for solutions around those problem space. And one of the one of the results is actually the CQRS pattern. So when when you're using that together with event sourcing, you can think of all changes as individual events slash, slash messages. So we're not capturing a complete object anymore, like we've been doing it in, in object-oriented JPA slash JDBC approaches, but we are capturing individual change events. And this is closely tied to uh, the theory behind domain-driven design. The persistent equivalent of this is actually called an aggregate root, which is a persistent entity in Logom. And uh, you can see it as a cluster of domain objects that can be treated as a single unit. If, if I should make a real-life example, um, think about the cargo tracker example that I've been talking about in my book, right? So there may be a piece of cargo and uh, the legs it has to take for its transport. So those are two separate objects. But it's definitely useful to, to treat the cargo together with the transport legs as a single aggregate, right? So we're providing a, a different view. The aggregate can actually reply to queries for a specific identifier, but it cannot be used for serving queries that spend more than one aggregate. So it's a, it's a real different way of thinking in, in terms of persistence. And what's missing at that point is that you need to create basically another view onto the data that is in the system. And, uh, that can be totally tailored to the individual queries and it doesn't even matter how complex they are. It can absolutely be optimized for exactly those queries. It's actually, yeah, separating the write from the read side. I think that's at the core of what CQRS does. And it's a really simple description, but, um, instead of having like the one read write bottleneck and having having to make a trade off between read and write performance um CQRS exactly allows you to implement what's the most performant and most accurate idea of getting data back to your clients or to the service clients uh, yeah no no that's a that, that's actually a really interesting um you know use um kind of example of that um i think switching gears a little bit and stepping back um, if we can, you know, I, I know the biggest challenge, you know, you know, to adopting, you know, principles of distributed systems when you talk to, you know, you know, more legacy companies or companies that have been doing things a long time, you know, is re-architecting or refactoring existing systems, as we've been talking about already, you know, monoliths, you know, what would you say is the best ways, you know, to integrate, you know, some of this legacy code with a microservices based architecture? <laughs> That's a good question. Actually, I made a bold statement in one of my talks before which literally said re-architecting or migrating an existing monolithic application into a reactive microservice-based distributed system or more generally microservice-based um, distributed system is literally not possible. You will end up, I mean, especially if it's five to ten years old, you will end up starting to rewrite the whole thing anyway and with all the new paradigms, with all the new software architecture and, and design approaches. But we still need to make that whole migration as painless as possible. And I know that many people think it's just, again, a matter of adding the right new technology to your existing projects and everything will turn out to be fine. 
I have to admit it's probably not going to be the right answer to that solution. So integrating legacy code with a microservice-based architecture is is something that you shouldn't do, but I acknowledge that, especially on those probably longer-running migration paths, this, this will have to happen. And uh, I can only speak for Lagom at that point. Um, I mean, it's built on Play and Akka, and Akka and Play actually have some very powerful individual components that allow you to basically access all kinds of protocols and endpoints that are typical for enterprise settings. Speaking of FTP uh, protocols to access like um, customer files, reports on host systems. That's literally the only only interface those systems might provide or accessing a web service with Play. So that is just like a monolith sitting somewhere in, in the basement and will sit there for another five years because it's just working. So you just have to pick the right strategy to decompose your monolith if you want to really want to start brownfield like slicing up what you already have or if you want to start greenfield and finding the right integration points with your existing uh, systems and using the right technologies to make that happen is probably the the only way to to go forward little word of advice at that point reactive and asynchronous systems behave differently as we've been talking about already than classical architectures. You can you can totally even bring down a reactive microservice if you add like a synchronous backend to it. So designing those synchronous interfaces and uh, actually having the, the correct integration approach is definitely one of the challenges um, going forward with legacy modernization. Mm-hmm. No, that's really interesting. Um... Yeah, so I mean, I, I you know, I guess kind of you know wrapping up a little bit, you know, I think an interesting question to ask. I mean, I know you've long you know been involved in you know and a proponent of open source software. Um, you know, how will you say you know this community will continue to shape and influence enterprise development over the next five years? Do you see any specific challenges? I've been working in around with open source since a couple of years now, and I have to admit, to me, it's it's still like the think tank of technologies. This is exactly the place where highly motivated, super intelligent people and communities get together and solve their problems. Like they see something happening in real life and their applications and they have an idea to make something up for the better, it's probably going to be implemented. So the open source community in general is is actually driving at an insane speed. It's fun to watch those open source projects to come up with new features and be a reliable component of literally every enterprise system as of today already. So beside being being a think tank, like an, an early leader of implementations, it's it's also like the backbone of modern enterprises because it's been it's been literally been used everywhere in the last couple of years. The biggest challenge that I see is exactly that, yeah, the the difference between the two. Um, so enterprises tend to assume that open source is, yeah, free, like in free beer. And it actually is, but it doesn't help the community by just pulling out all of their power. Uh, filing tickets is a good way to actually 
contribute, but if you just file tickets uh, for your individual solution and you never actually contribute back to that project in terms of code or in terms of documentation, there are so many ways to actually contribute to those open source projects. So I think what I'm trying to say is you can't always take out without giving back. And I still see that as an unresolved challenge, especially for smaller open source projects. If they got a reasonable pickup in, in the enterprises and they still like are a five people project team, that might be a challenge going forward, especially if they really develop a trend. So I'd like to see a lot more people developing kind of that giving approach to open source. And that personally means a lot to me because this is literally where I started out my career in open source by starting to contribute German translations to to an open source project. It's been like simple guides and stuff that I could actually do in, on, uh, in my evening hours. So it's not been a big deal for me. But I, I learned to appreciate to work in that settings. It's It's been fun to communicate with all the people. And seeing my guides, my translations out there actually kind of made me proud. And mm -hmm. I really would like to see many, many more enterprises uh, realizing that they're Open source is a is a, not a one-way street, right? So it goes in both directions. If open source community is providing a great framework that you want to use, and there's a, definitely a great chance for you to return a couple of favors, like let the share your experiences with that with running in production, file feature ideas, feature requests, file bugs for sure, maybe even send a developer to do it. Like uh, project teams could definitely help developing those open source projects. I personally believe that open source is the core and we all wouldn't be where we are today if everything that we would have to handle is um, would, would have been closed source. Like back in the days, Visual SawSafe, um, I couldn't live in in Microsoft land as it's been a couple of years ago. I mean, even Microsoft is changing, right? So right. they are they're embracing uh, open source and it's kind of proven to be the number one model of collaborative software development. So another nail in the coffin of, of all those big platform application platform vendors maybe because I mean, if you ever try to debug something in a classical Java E application server without having like the source code in front of you and being able to step through everything in your debugger, yeah, that's definitely not good. And open source takes all those pains away, right? Because the source code is available. And uh, this is, to me, a critical thing in the meantime. I don't want to just decompile proprietary stuff anymore. Even, I mean, no, not saying that I ever did that because it's probably forbidden. But uh, yeah, you, you get me, right? Yeah, no, I think, you know, again, you know, th those are kind of the things that we hear a lot about, too, when we're talking about people either at OSCON or other conferences. So it's it's always great to, you know, again, to see, you know, the fruits of open source and seeing it continue to kind of move forward, but also evolve and, and, and take shape and influence, you know, major you know areas and industries. And I think we're continuing to see that, um, which is really interesting. Um, so, yeah. So, again, you know, we're, we're talking with Marcus Isola here, uh, developer advocate of Lightband. Um, so, Marcus, you know, I just want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you, Brian. It was a pleasure for me. Always good to talk to you.